Without further ado, I'd like to introduce our speaker for tonight. Matt Walsh is a popular writer, blogger, and speaker. His columns on The Daily Wire are read by millions each month. Matt is known for his controversial and provocative insights into culture, politics, and religion. Please join me in welcoming Matt Walsh. Thank you. Thank you so much. No, I don't. Thank you. Thank you. You uh, set the bar way too high when you give the standing ovation before I say anything. So what I'd like to talk about tonight is the war on masculinity. Um, specifically, how our culture attacks, disparages, undermines, and attempts to destroy masculinity. And I want to focus even more narrowly than that and consider especially the effect of this campaign on younger men and, uh, and boys. This is a problem not talked about enough, not well enough understood, and too often denied, especially by people who've staked a lot on the claim that women and not men are uniquely disadvantaged in our society. Now, I don't deny that women do have challenges that are unique to them, but I think there is much more of a coordinated, sustained, all-encompassing, suffocating effort to attack and destroy men in our society. And this campaign is waged through a few different channels, a few different avenues, and I'd like to go through each of them one by one and talk about them. So, number one, our culture preys on a boy's weaknesses. So let's imagine the world uh, that the average, say, 13-year-old boy inhabits. Many people here don't have to imagine it. They've lived it. He has long since been exposed to hardcore pornography, probably watches it regularly on average. That's the case. Average age of first exposure is now 10 years old, perhaps younger, depending on uh, what study you read. Then puberty hits. His hormones are going haywire. His brain is hardwiring itself to focus obsessively on sex. He can't really help it. He's now fertile, while girls his age, for the most part, are not. So he feels the biological impulse to go out and find a sexual partner, though he doesn't understand this urge, and he's not mature enough to act safely on it. And his conception of human sexuality has been perverted and confused by the porn habit that he developed in sixth grade. Now this boy cannot escape sex. It's all over his computer. It's all over his phone. It's all over social media. It's all over the TV. It's all over the music that he listens to. It's all over everywhere. It seems that everyone is doing everything they can to make a degenerate and a creep out of him, even as they demand that he control himself. So we ask for self-discipline and self-control from the boy while providing him with no tools to develop them whatsoever. Rather than tools, we give him temptation, nonstop temptation everywhere he goes, all day, every day, right at the moment when his brain is least capable of overcoming it. And even if the boy possesses the almost superhuman moral fortitude required to pursue chastity and purity in the midst of the sex-choked fog that engulfs him, he'll only meet mockery and discouragement from our society. The very people who demand that he respect women and control himself will heap scorn on him if he actually tries to do exactly that. Again, the boy will need to call upon his superhuman courage to ignore the jeers just as he rejects the temptations so that he can walk the path to virtue on his own with no help from anyone, including oftentimes his parents. Most boys don't have this courage. Most adults don't have it. Yet we expect of our boys a virtue that we do not possess and have never demonstrated for them. 
Two, the education system is designed for girls. There's a reason why girls outperform boys in school. Girls are not smarter on average, but they have an easier time because the classroom is set up to reward the calm and organized feminine demeanor more natural to girls. Boys are more rambunctious. They have more physical energy. They're less able to sit still, less able to focus attentively on one dull task for a prolonged period of time. The typical classroom environment is torture, therefore, for a boy. It penalizes him for being himself. It penalizes him for being a girl. As a result, boys get lower grades. Boys are more likely to drop out. Boys are more likely to be expelled. Boys are more likely to be suspended. Boys are less likely to go to college. Perhaps worst of all, boys are twice as likely to be diagnosed with ADHD. By high school, 20% of boys, 20%, 20%, I say again, 20% are diagnosed. Yeah, we never stop to ask ourselves why boys are more susceptible to this mysterious mental condition. We never stop to consider that perhaps we're not so much diagnosing boys as we are diagnosing boyhood. If the school system was not predicated on sitting still and memorizing things for seven or eight hours at a time, and it need not be, there would be no ADHD. The ADHD diagnosis is, after all, situational. One of the first things they want to know when you take your child to the doctor under suspicion of ADHD. And by the way, if you're a parent and you think your child has ADHD and you want to get him diagnosed, you will. You will get him diagnosed. It will happen, which tells you something. When you take your child there, though, to the doctor, um, one of the first questions they ask you is whether your child's lack of attention is causing significant problems in school. But why should that matter if this is a real mental illness? I mean, if you take your child... Well, take a real physical illness for a minute. Let's say juvenile diabetes. If you take your child to the doctor and say, doctor, I think he has juvenile diabetes, they aren't going to say, but is this causing problems at school? That's irrelevant to the diagnosis. Diabetes is diabetes, no matter if it causes problems or not. But ADHD is not always ADHD. Back in the old agrarian societies, for example, they didn't have ADHD. It didn't exist. Why? Well, because it wasn't a problem back then for a boy to have lots of physical energy. In fact, it was necessary that he did. Now it is a problem because we want him to sit still for the first 18 years of his life and memorize information, and so we call it ADHD. We have arbitrarily decided that every child must be the sort of child who thrives in that specific environment, even if we have to stuff pills into his mouth to force the issue. Girls are not drugged nearly as often because most of them are already the sort of people the school system prefers. The school system may not prefer girls specifically, but it does prefer people who have characteristics more common in girls, which is most of the time effectively the same thing. And you really have to ask yourself, if the system cannot function without drugging a quarter of the kids in its care, then is there a problem with our kids or is there a, pro is there a problem with the system? The system is so dead set on neutering boys and never catering to their unique needs that now even recess, the one outlet that they used to have, has largely been taken away. Gone are most of the childhood games that I grew up playing. Dodgeball, tag, that sort of thing. Too aggressive, too competitive, we can't do that. See, that's the other thing. Boys are naturally more competitive. Boys compete over everything. I have two boys, I know. You should hear some of the arguments that my sons get into. The other, the other morning, my wife uh, woke up to hear them screaming at each other. This is 5.15 in the morning, by the way. Um, screaming at each other, arguing over whether Cat in the Hat can go to heaven when he dies. <laughs> and uh, that was a real argument. 
And the answer is no, the guy's a damned vandal and burglar. Have you read those books? So, you know, their competitive spirit can be hilarious sometimes. Preferably, it's more hilarious if it's after dawn at some point, but, but it's healthy and it should be encouraged, especially in school where it can be harnessed to promote excellence. See, this is one thing that boys could have going for them, would help them thrive. You're very competitive. You want to be better than the next person. That's a good thing. Yet the school system is not only designed for girls, but it's run by them too. I mean, the vast majority of people running schools and teaching in schools are women. Wasn't always that way, it is that way now. And that is why you see uh, the priority now in schools is things like equality and equity and kindness and tolerance and so forth. Some schools are even getting rid of the grading system. Now, obviously we need to teach our boys to be obedient and respectful and kind, and they really do need to calm the hell down and be quiet sometimes. But boys also need to be boys, and I'm afraid they're rarely given that opportunity these days. They're always being told, no, stop, calm down, be quiet, sit still. We treat their boyhood like something that needs to be treated or fixed, like a malignant growth of some kind. We have literally made it into a mental illness, and why? Because we need them to fit into the systems that we have in place. We need them to go with the flow at our pace on our schedule. A boy's personality, his whole way of being, is an obstacle in our path, so we scold him, stifle him, drug him, subdue him, until we make him compliant. Number three, masculinity is denigrated. Now, femininity is also attacked in our culture as well, of course, but nobody would ever call femininity itself toxic or fragile. Nobody talks about female privilege, even though females enjoy many unique privileges in this society. My wife, for example, has never gotten a speeding ticket, and it's not because she's never been pulled over, I can tell you that. Also, nobody would label all women dangerous or as, quote-unquote, potential monsters to be feared, which is what someone from the New York Times once said about men. In fact, guidelines from the American Psychological Association a few years ago, a couple years ago, declared masculinity explicitly harmful. A post on the APA website explains, quote, In 2007, researchers found that the more men conformed to masculine norms the more likely they were to consider as normal, risky, healthy behaviors, such as heavy drinking, using tobacco, and avoiding vegetables, and to engage in these risky behaviors themselves. Now, I confess, I was a little excited to see avoiding vegetables listed as a risky behavior, because <laughs> I've been feeling kind of old and lame recently, and um, now I don't have to go buy a motorcycle or join a bare-knuckle boxing league, because I take my life in my hands every time I pass by the salad bar at Ruby Tuesdays, I guess. Um, Anyway, it says the, the quote-unquote main thrust of recent research, according to the article, is that traditionally masculine traits such as stoicism, competitiveness, dominance, and aggression are harmful. Among other things, we're told that all of these stoically aggressive men are reluctant to seek self-care, including psychological care. Now, I wonder, could it be that men are reluctant to consult psychologists in part because the psychological community has labeled all of us disordered? That is, after all, the crux of these guidelines. If stoicism, competitiveness, uh, aggression are on the whole harmful, as it says, then manhood itself is harmful. These traits are natural to men. Not every man has masculine traits to the same, traits to the same degree, and perhaps some men hardly display them at all, most of the men who work for CNN, for example. <laughs> but in, uh, in general, men are more emotionally reserved more aggressive, more competitive, and more physically dominant. 
It didn't become this way because society engineered it this way. It already was this way. It always has been this way. Society did not invent masculinity. Society noticed it and gave it a name. And that's why throughout history, societies across the world, even those who never came in contact with each other, had unknowingly come to certain near-unanimous agreements about the role of men everywhere in the world. In most civilizations, men did things like hunt and fight wars and protect their homes and play violent games of various sorts. There were coming-of-age rituals across the world for boys that were focused on making sure the boy is tough and strong and self-sufficient and so on. And certain masculine traits like stoicism, competitiveness, dominance, aggression, were again in civilizations that had never come in contact with each other, encouraged and celebrated. Even when, you know, just as one example, when the Spanish and the Aztec civilizations met, two civilizations that had, until that point, never encountered each other, an ocean apart, a world apart. But still, a lot of these very basic notions of manhood were shared by the two. They manifested in different ways, such as with the Aztecs, you know, ripping out human hearts and so on. But um, I guess these days we'd call that toxic masculinity. But still, the basic, the basic ideas were there. The point here is that even from an anthropological perspective, it's evident that masculinity is not some arbitrary invention. It is ingrained. It is innate. Four, society intentionally sows confusion into the minds of boys. Now, there has been, as you've probably noticed, an overwhelming push in recent years to impose gender confusion onto children. Boys seem to be the special target, in the younger years anyway, though among adolescents, it's kind of interesting, it flips, and among adolescents, preteens and teens, now girls are by far and away more commonly falling victim to the gender confusion. Now, this push is being made uh, by all of the powerful forces in our culture, from Hollywood to media, academia, corporations, government, the courts, the medical industry, and so on. Even on the very local level, even in conservative areas, you find it. I mean, you could go to a small town library in a red county and find drag queens reading to children. And what's the point of that? Yeah, the library wants to do a story time for children. Fine, great. Why do you need men dressed like women from a Tim Burton movie? Why, why, do, they, why do they have to be the ones reading it? Well, the purpose is, quite plainly, to normalize. That is, promote this kind of lifestyle to children. And efforts like this on both the local and broader level have been tragically and horrifically and infuriatingly effective. More and more children end up falling prey to this disorder. And when they do, when a child expresses a perfectly natural, given the circumstances, confusion about his gender, rather than alleviating that confusion, rather than explaining the truth to him, his parents and the schools and the doctors are often eager to foment the confusion, fertilize it, water it, make it grow. They'll even use chemicals and drugs to seal the deal. It is legal in this country to give children the same drug that they use to chemically castrate sex offenders. That's what Lupron is, what they call a puberty blocker. It is chemical castration, by definition. They give it to sex offenders. A gender-confused confused boy can be chemically castrated in this country, all because he doesn't understand some basic facts about himself and he doesn't understand those facts because nobody has ever told him. Here's the reality, of course. A child cannot choose his gender. A very young child can't reliably make any choice of any kind. I mean, take a child to Baskin-Robbins and ask him which flavor he prefers, 
And he'll give you 14 different answers before collapsing on the floor in tears. I've been there, trust me. Let him decide what outfits he's going to wear. He'll, end, he'll emerge from his room wearing, you know, one shoe, no pants, underwear on his head. I've done this too. Allow him to choose what he wants for dinner, and he will be, at least my kids, they'll select a bowl of ketchup with a side of gummy bears and whipped cream. <laughs> a child at a young age has not developed the cognitive ability to assess a variety of options and decide which course is correct and safe and healthy. He's not going to have that ability for several more years, and a lot of adults never develop that ability these days. But of course, we have to say that nobody can choose his or her own gender. It's not just kids. That matter is irrevocably settled by our chromosomes and our reproductive organs. But the leftist position here is so preposterous that even if one grants the premise that gender can theoretically be chosen, which again, it can't, but even if I were to grant that, the left would still be wrong in thinking that children, even as young as three years old, they tell us, can choose it. There's a reason why toddlers are not entrusted with any legal powers or responsibilities. They can't vote, they can't drive, they can't, uh, they can't, take, out, you know, they can't take out a mortgage, they can't buy a gun, they can't buy a ticket for an R-rated movie, they can't buy alcohol, they can't buy cigarettes. They can't buy anything at all because they're simply too young to do so. Young children cannot grasp the distinction between fantasy and reality. If you tell a toddler that Batman isn't real, he'll stare at you blankly. It doesn't mean anything. Isn't real is a, is a, is a, a concept, an empty concept to a child. I remember my oldest son, about four years old at the time, once tried to uh, leap over the banister on the second floor of our house. And I stopped him just in time, and I warned him very sternly that he must never do that again. And uh, he said that he can, it'll be fine, because Spider-Man jumps off stuff all the time. <laughs> and I explained to him that Spider-Man isn't real, and he said to me, no, you're wrong, Daddy, I know he's real, I've seen him on TV. <laughs> That's how a kid thinks. Now, are we supposed to believe that people this ignorant and immature, so innocently detached from reality, can make meaningful declarations about their own gender? A boy who says he's a girl doesn't know what a girl is. I mean, adult leftists don't know what a girl is either. <laughs> but as I've discovered, because I've been asking them for years and they can't answer it, but <laughs> the child has an excuse at least. So the next time you hear a young boy make this claim about himself, which many young boys do, it's actually a kind of a normal phase of childhood. But if you ever hear a young boy say, I'm a girl, how about a simple follow-up question that nobody ever seems to ask, which is, what, what is a girl? What do you mean by that, Junior? What, what are you trying to say? And if you dig a little bit deeper, you'll discover that I'm a girl really means something like, my sister's dollhouse looks cool and I'd like to play with it. You know, um, his declaration of being a girl is really a declaration that he is interested in some of the things that his little toddler brain associates with girls, which is fine. As adults, it's our job to help children sort through this confusion. We're supposed to be the ones grounded in reality, the ones who understand the distinction between fantasy and reality. But if we fail to delineate between the two, then what chance do our kids have? So this is how the assault on boyhood has been carried out. It's why we are witnessing a historic decline in masculinity in this country, a decline so pronounced that it's even reflected in rapidly dropping testosterone levels. I think something like 1% a year over the last 30 years is, what we're, is the trajectory. But then there's the next question, is this a problem? I mean, do we actually need masculinity? 
Or can we dispense with masculinity and become a society of, you know, CNN men, of Brian Stelters? Uh, no, we, we cannot all be Brian Stelter. Even Brian Stelter shouldn't be Brian Stelter, to be honest. <laughs> we do need masculinity. No society has ever thrived absent of masculinity. Granted, none were ever crazy enough to try. We are in many ways attempting to blaze a new trail here. But it won't lead anywhere to, to anywhere but ruin and destruction. Because you think about what role has masculinity traditionally played in society. Well, men have been the fighters. They've been the hunters. They've been the builders, the protectors, the providers. Men have also traditionally led in fields like science and math. The majority of great technological advancements and discoveries have been made by men. The majority of the great scientific discoveries have been made by men. Most of the most brilliant scientists in history, the vast, vast majority, were all men. That is not a coincidence. It's not because women are being excluded. It's just because there's something in the male brain that tends more towards these sorts of things. Men have been pioneers in multiple senses of the word. Men are especially suited for these various roles because they are typically stronger, more competitive, and more analytical, which is where the science and math comes in. Men are indeed bigger risk takers too, as that AP, uh, APA document suggests, but this is a good thing. Also, women are much more emotionally intelligent. They have greater empathy. While men tend to think more systematically, they tend to care less about how people feel. They're just worried about, about systemizing everything and, and, uh, and analyzing it that way. This is not me just making this up, by the way. They've done many studies on this subject, and these are always the results. In fact, I was just reading an article in The Telegraph about uh, the largest study ever conducted on this subject, a University of Cambridge study of well over half a million people, an enormous sample size, and it found exactly this. Women are empathetic, men are logical. That's what the study found, speaking in very broad terms, of course. Now, other scientists condemned this study as neurosexism, which only proves the point I'm making here. It is a womanly, feminine approach to get upset about the results of a study because it might hurt people's feelings. Um, it is. Now, we need people in society who care about feelings. We do. We also need the manly input, which says, well, to hell with how they feel. This is the truth. That's what we lose when we lose masculinity. We lose largely uh, not only the benefits of physical strength, but also the voice of detached, somewhat cold logic and reason. A healthy society values both the feminine and the masculine, finds a place for both, a role for both, a gender role, if you like. An unhealthy society like ours thinks that it can shove one half of the equation out the door, lock the deadbolt, and leave masculinity out in the cold. It can't work that way. Society needs masculinity. It's not going to function without it. Certainly will not thrive without it. And we're going to learn that lesson the hard way, I'm afraid. So then finally, the question is, what can we do about all this? How can we counteract what we're seeing? Well, that's a larger question than I have time to fully answer. I think for one thing, there should be laws passed on some of these issues. Um, I'm not much of a libertarian myself. I believe in passing laws, but I like good laws, not bad ones. So that's, that's my radical sort of in-between position there. I believe that pornography should be banned on the, under the same principle and for the same reason that prostitution is banned. Pornography, after all, is just prostitution with a camera. And there should be laws passed against castrating children, too. It's amazing that we have to pass laws like that, but we do. Also, I think our entire approach to education needs to change from the bottom up. 
The whole thing is wrong. It all needs to be reworked. The mass-produced assembly line, factory-style education system just doesn't work. It especially doesn't work for boys. A more localized, more personalized, less constricting form of education is needed, and that's where things like homeschooling come into play. And of course, we need fathers to be fathers. Boys need to be taught how to be boys, and they need fathers to do the teaching. A mother can't teach her son how to be a man any more than I can teach my daughters how to be a woman. Now, I can teach my daughters, very importantly, how a woman ought to be treated, but I can't shape her in her femininity the way that my wife can. Likewise, my wife cannot form and harness our son's masculinity the way that I can. Neither can we rely on TV or pop culture or the schools to do that job. They will not mold my sons. They will simply obliterate them. Everywhere a boy turns, if he cannot turn to his father, he will find powerful forces trying desperately to drag him into despair, confusion, and self-loathing. He will find, at best, caricatures of what a man is supposed to be. And that's why there are so many boys growing up without fathers amidst this fatherless epidemic, and they go to the media, and they find caricatures of men, and then that's what they become. They become sort of cartoon men walking around. The feminists say that masculinity is fragile, and actually, in a way, they're sort of right. A boy's identity is a fragile thing. It needs to be protected, guarded, or it will be consumed. A boy is bursting with energy and dreams and ambition. He feels a deep longing to use that energy and take those ambitions and do something with it, go somewhere. My son has built a raft. We have no water anywhere near our property, <laughs> but we have a raft that he built and is sitting in our front, in our front yard. And he wants to get on that, that raft, and he, wants to, he keeps telling me he wants to go down the Mississippi River. We are nowhere near the Mississippi River, but that, that's his plan. This is what boys want to do. He needs someone, his father namely, to show him how to harness this energy, or else he'll figure it out on his own, finding no help anywhere else, and the result may literally kill him. A girl needs guidance too, of course, but she has some advantages. For one, almost every home in America features a mom, which is a good. For another, most schools are staffed and run by women, as we covered. For another, our culture is extraordinarily focused on empowering and encouraging girls and telling them how beautiful they are, how special and valuable and important and strong they are, which is great. But boys don't have that. And also the female instinct is calmer, more relational, more domestic. A girl looks for fulfillment in her home and in her relationships. A boy feels the indescribable, uncontainable urge to go out into the wild and find fulfillment in something, something out there, but he doesn't know precisely what or where. The culture comes along like the snake in the garden and says, go that way, that's where you'll find it. And if the boy follows, he'll be led into a lifetime of failure and misery and confusion. That's where the father is needed, to come to the rescue, to stomp on the serpent, to take the boy's hand, to look him in the eye, to tell him, you're a boy, and that's good. And one day you'll be a man, and I'll show you how. Follow me. That's what a boy needs. Many will never get it, and we will hate them for what they become. But it didn't have to turn out that way. If only someone had been there to help. If only they'd been given a chance. That's it for me. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you.
Thank you. No, no. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. All right. Thank you. We will now um, begin the Q&A portion of the event. Please make your way to the back of the room, and one of my colleagues will assist you. Please remember to limit yourself to one brief question. Our first question. Hello, Mr. Walsh. Thank you so much for your amazing speech. So I was wondering, in issues of marriage and family, is the best policy a libertarian approach to keep the government out of these important issues? Like, where do you see the government and laws being necessary and productive in these matters? Uh, no, I, I, I don't think that we can. I mean, at, at this point, um, we could talk about what we think practically going to happen or what goals are, are, uh, are reasonable versus what should, should happen, what's the ideal. I mean, obviously the gay marriage question effectively in our society is settled in the sense that there's no reversing that probably. Um, but in an ideal scenario, yeah, the government has an interest. I mean, the government has an interest in marriage. Society has an interest in marriage and in protecting marriage. Um, so I, 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 don't, I don't agree with the libertarian approach. I think that's the, one of the mistakes that we made as conservatives, you know, before the gay marriage question was effectively settled by the Supreme Court, is that more and more conservatives adopted this kind of libertarian approach and said, hey, you know, live, uh, you do your thing, I'll do my thing, giving up on these fundamental human institutions, and uh, you, just, you just can't do that. Yeah. Thank you so much. Hello, sir. Um, I listen to your content all summer, every day. Sweet baby gang member, all that. Um, you listened in the summer, but it's now in the, the, sort of the fall. You gave up in the fall then. I did. Okay. Um, so that's actually what my question is, which is that it became very clear to me over the summer that I was starting to make politics my God more than it was Jesus. So my question is, how do you avoid that? And also, do you think listening to your content is good for the soul? It, I, I mean, in fact, I think one of the questions you're going to be asked at the pearly gates is, how many hours of the Matt Walsh show did you watch? I mean, <laughs> I don't know. That's my, it's just my, that's my theory anyway. That's, I could be wrong. Um, yeah, making politics your God, that, that is, I wish I could give you the perfect answer to that because I, to be totally transparent and honest with you, that's something that I struggle with as well. Uh, it, it's, it's hard for me. I always have the excuse of I do this for my job, so I have to be so immersed in all of these things. But then we, um, we tend to make the mistake of thinking that the future, you know, the most important thing is what's happening uh, politically, and not even politically in our local communities. Uh, but we tend to focus obsessively on what's happening, you know, in Washington, national politics. Um, and uh, I guess I should be getting around to an answer here, but I already said I'm not, I'm not great at it myself. I think, we, I think we just, if we realize that we're not supposed to be doing that, if we realize that the most important thing is our spiritual life, and as a, as a father, I realize that, uh, you know, what's, what's going to determine the fate of my family and what's going to determine... To a, to a large extent, what kind of children, what kind of people my children become. It's not who the president is. It's, it's me, it's my wife, it's the spiritual foundation we provide for them. So we try to keep that in mind, but it is a constant, it's a constant battle. Yeah. Thank you, sir. 
Thank you for your speech, Mr. Walsh. Um, I had a question concerning this just issue in America that we struggle with men um, in relation to freedom of speech. And do you think there's any issue that freedom of speech causes in relation to this problem, just everyone being able to say what they want? Or what's your opinion on the matter? Well, I think we have to you know, come to an understanding of what uh, freedom of speech you know, what it, what, it, what it means and what, what are we actually protecting. I think this is one of the problems that we have is word, we use words like freedom. We talk about human rights, you know, and if you go up to pretty much anybody and you ask them to define those terms, it's, it, 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 they really can't. You know, it's, it's, this is kind of, it's ambiguous. We have these vague ideas of it. Certainly if you put 100 people in a room together and you poll all of them, poll 100 Americans on what these words mean, um, you, you could probably get 95 different answers. And um, I am not a free speech absolutist. You know, I do think that the most important thing is the, is the common good, is that we, we live in a society pointed towards the good. And so speech that corrupts and pollutes and pulls people away from that, I think we have to take a look at that, especially when kids are being exposed to it. So this, this goes back to the porn question. I don't know if that's where you're going with it, but um, we also have to keep in mind you know, with pornography, Children have access to it through their phones, through the internet, uh, but we also know our, our laws are built on this idea that, that kids cannot consent. Um, and so you could argue that every time a child is exposed to pornography, it's a, sort of a form of rape. He's, he's being exposed to a sexual act. He's, he's, he is being enlisted as a third-party participant in a sexual act, though he cannot consent to it. And so that's something you have to weigh as well. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but... Uh, I went around in a circle. I think I came back to some sort of answer. Yeah. 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 Okay. okay. Thank you. Great. Hi, Mr. Walsh. Thank you for coming to uh, Ave Maria tonight. I'm a huge fan of your podcast, and I think you're by far the funniest member of Daily Wire. Oh. Now, I, I listened to your we'll podcast you quite, quite a bit, and I can tell you're not a huge fan of uh, Donald Trump's four-dimensional chess. Uh, and recently after the Youngkin victory, you said uh, you, you had a tweet where you said there was a need for the conservative movement to move on from Donald Trump. Yeah. And now I understand uh, you're not a fan of his petty narcissism. You're not a fan of his lack of political acumen, something that really handicapped him throughout his four years. The thing that hurt his presidency the most, in my opinion, was the fact he was not able to hire the best people. Many of his people in his administration uh, consistently undermined his policy. Do you not think we'd be better served trying to hold him accountable for hiring better advisors and staff than try to replace him in a primary that would undoubtedly divide the party? So a couple of things here. Um, the first thing is I do not think that we should be electing any 78-year-olds to, to political office. And I don't, I don't care. I, I honestly, I don't care who they are, or what party they're, they're, they're a part of. It. It's, it's crazy to me that we don't have, there's a, there's, a, there's, an, a, there's a lower age limit to the presidency of 35. It's crazy to me that we don't have an upper age limit too. I mean, how about 75? So you, you got 40 good years to get in there. If you can't do it in 40 years, then go home and be with your grandkids. Um, so that's my, the first part of my answer is that he's going to be 78 years old in 2024. And as far as I am concerned, that rules you out. I mean, the idea of, of having someone turn 80 in the White House, we're experiencing that right now, and it hasn't worked out very well. There are, there are some, there, there are some basic, and I know we could always say, well, he's different, people are different. He's not, because we're all mortal beings. 
right? And so there's some realities to being a mortal being. We don't like to think about it or talk about it, but our bodies and minds start to break down as we, as we head towards our own death. That's just the reality of being mortal. That's the first thing. Um, second, I, for me, you, you talk about he, he was bad at hiring people, and he was certainly bad at that. Uh, and that's, that's a big issue for a number of reasons. One of them is that he, he ran on this promise of draining the swamp, and he simply didn't do it at all. Uh, in fact, he hired a lot of the swamp. And, but that, to me, is not the biggest problem with Donald Trump. From my perspective, and I, this, is what I, this was my intuition about him from the beginning, it doesn't seem to me that he really cares about most of these issues all that much. Um, the thing that he was primarily focused on, from my perspective, when he was in office, was what's the media saying about him? Like, he's very concerned about what is said about him, specifically. And that also makes him easy to manipulate. And so there are a lot of people that are able to get into his orbit, get into his administration, because they knew that no matter what else they said, no matter what other positions they held, no matter what else they did, if they sucked up to him, they'd be in his good graces. Meanwhile, if they didn't suck up to him, no matter how talented they were and how good they were, they were out. I mean, look at what Donald Trump did, for example, to uh, Thomas Massey, like one, of the, one of the best people we have in Congress, by far. And Trump hated him and tried to get him run out of town because he didn't suck up to Trump enough. So, you know, I, I don't see those problems going away. Um, I don't think at the age of 78, you just magically transform into a different person. I think you kind of are who you are. And so that's why I would like to see, you know, I think it's time to go to the bench Find the, find the talent on the bench. And fortunately, there, there, are, there is some talent there. A little bit, not a lot, but there's some. And uh, I think we need to go there. That was a long answer, but that's, that's it. So thanks for... Thank you very much. Thank you. Hi, Mr. Walsh. Thank you for your talk. Um, so you said that you think that boys need to be taught to be men primarily by their fathers, but what do you think that women can do to encourage the men and boys in their life to be better men? Uh, that's a really good question. Are we talking about mothers or just women in general? Just women in general. Okay. Because one, uh, one really good thing that, uh, that a mother can do is you know, show respect to her husband, show the proper relationship with a husband, with, with her husband. And um, that's going to that's gonna set a good example for both of her kids. Um, but I think, in, in, you know, aside from that, I mean, there are certain basic needs that kids have, both boys and girls. They need to be brought up in virtue. Um, women can do that as well. You know, so obviously there's a lot that women can do. It's just the, the specific... You know, being formed specifically in your masculinity. I think that's something that men, and the reason is this, it's not that men, it's not that as a father, you're passing down these lessons verbally. I mean, there's some of that, but most of it is just demonstration. You know, your, your sons are copying everything you do. I see this every day with my sons. Like, this is, I can sit them down and I can lecture them, and I do, and I do plenty of that, as you can imagine. And I can, when I'm lecturing them, I can even see, like, you can see the words just going in one ear and going out. It was like this, this blank stare. Um, but whatever you're doing, they'll follow and they'll copy. That's, that's what they care about is the demonstration. So um, that's why I think, you know, men have that special role, but there's a lot women can do as well. Thanks. Thank you. So first, Mr. Walsh, I'd like to thank you for everything you do. I'm a uh, 
I'm a comrade of the People's Communist Republic of New Jersey. So your My show condolences, has, sir. <laughs> your show has been a breath of fresh air for me, just in the environment, you know, swimming in a lot of progressive ideas. But I happened upon your Squid Game video, and I noticed that was one of the rare instances where the dislikes and the comments were largely disagreeing with your perspective. And one thing that I picked up on there, as well as tonight, when you mentioned not being a free speech absolutist, is that you hadn't seen the show, but yeah. you thought there should be some hesitancy about watching it, especially because of the violence and the gruesome content. So I'm a writer, which is a pretentious way of saying I'm unemployed. And... <laughs> I'm always fascinated with the use of violence, especially in Catholic or traditional literature, to convey a message. From Flannery O'Connor's A Good Man is Hard to Find, Brett Easton Ellis' American Psycho, all the way to, um, to even Eastern literature like Endo Silence, where gruesome scenes are used to portray some kind of moral or spiritual reality that the large body of society would have otherwise missed. And I pick up on this theme often in conservative circles that we're quick to judge things based on their content, and the way that I've heard explained to me is a portrayal of a sin or a negative thing is a is a advocacy of that. So how do you think we as conservatives, or um, at least closer to the right side of the wing, can learn to differentiate between those two things? Where does where does censoring it because it makes us uncomfortable stop, and exploring it because there might be an idea worth exploring? Begin. Yeah, well, I agree with everything you said. Yeah, the Squid Game thing. Um, I think I was probably just wrong about that, so don't tell anybody I said that. We're not gonna, we're cutting this, this is not making it onto the live stream. Um, because I, I said I hadn't actually seen it, I was going based on the reaction. And after the fact, I talked to some other people, and yeah, I was probably just wrong about that one. Uh, again, I'm not, that's, that doesn't leave this room. But um, what I said in general in that video, I, I, I stand by. I think I probably applied it. I might have applied it wrongly. I still haven't seen it, so I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm flying blind here as far as that goes. But uh, what I said in general, I think, stands whether or not it applies to that particular show. I think if it's violence, if it's gratuitous violence, where the entertainment, the, the entertainment quality is found in the violence itself, you, you are there to see the violence, it's violence for its own sake, um, then that's a problem. So one obvious example of that, uh, when, when I was a teenager, the, mo the movie Saw, I think they, they just came out with another one recently, and that's a perfect example of that kind of movie, where the only reason you're watching that is just to see the gratuitous, heinous violence being visited upon people. And uh, there's real, it's not in service to anything. There's no, there is no story. The story is the violence, and that's it. Um, as compared to a great war film, like Saving Private Ryan, where there is graphic violence, but it's in service to a story. And it's a story worth telling, and it's also a story that you would not be able to tell without showing or at least not be able to, to effectively tell without showing the real horror of war. Um, so I think that's, that's what it's about. And, and, you know, similar to, I guess, to a certain extent with, with sexual content in, in, uh, in movies, I don't think there's any, ever, ever any reason for graphic sex in a movie, but, um, you know, nudity, that sort of thing. I think all of these things, you have to look at it. Is this in service to the story? Is it necessary for the story they're telling? Is it gratuitous? You know, those kinds of questions. Thank you. Would you be willing to provide an example of something that you think does it properly beyond war films? Because it's a pretty common example. Uh, of, a, of a movie that has violence where the violence is necessary for the story? Uh, I, you know, my favorite movie of all time is, is Godfather 1 and 2. Um, I can just consider them one movie, but... Um, 
you know, that I, I'd, I'd say that's that's one. It's kind of a it's a it's a tragedy. It's a morality tale, I think. Um, Breaking Bad's my favorite TV show. I, I know I'm not breaking any new ground with these with these uh, selections, but that's another one. So there's there's I think there's, there's quite a lot, quite a lot of, of examples you could you could point to. I think. Awesome. Thank you so yep. much. Hi, my question is, if we have family members or friends who are confused about their gender, um, how can we love them but also help them to see the truth? Yeah, I think uh, the one thing that we cannot do for people that we love is ever affirm them in their delusions. And we always have to remember that, um, you know, we look at in the transgender among transgender people, the suicide rate is something like, I don't have the number in front of me, it's something like 40%. Um, and despite what we're told, by the way, that rate does not go down significantly or at all after surgery. It really doesn't matter. Surgery, no surgery, drugs, no drugs. That rate is there. So what that tells us is that people who are in the midst of this delusion are deeply, deeply unhappy. I mean, they are, they are quite literally in despair. Um, they have no sense of their own identity. And so that's the first thing. If we, if we leave them to that, if we affirm them in that, then that is, that's not a loving thing. We're leaving them to that despair. And so I think, um, but we also have to adopt different approaches depending on the forum, you know? So while I'm standing up here in front of an entire audience, I'm talking about transgender issues. There are certain things that I'll say, a certain tone that I'll take that I wouldn't necessarily say or take if I was talking directly in a personal one-on-one setting with a transgender person. Uh, that's one thing that's kind of lost in these, you know, we talk about what tone and uh, what sort of things we should be saying. It's, it's, not, it's not one or the other. It really depends on the audience. As long as we're always staying in the truth and we're never affirming falsehoods. Um, but in a one-on-one -on -one situation, I think, you know, it, that calls to be gentle, um, to be understanding, not to be angry, uh, but just to, to remain in truth and to tell them, you know, the message, I think, to a boy who thinks he's a girl, is, no, you're, you're a boy, and that's, uh, that's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Or an adolescent girl who, as I said, it's much more common among adolescents. This is much more common among girls. But the message to a girl would be, it's, it's a beautiful thing to be a girl. You, sh you should embrace that. That's, that's wonderful. Um, and so I think that's the message we should communicate. Thank you. Thanks. So about banning pornography, are you talking about banning the consumption or production distribution of pornography? I'm thinking in Summa, Thomas Aquinas, Prima Secunda 96.2, he says that in order for law to be just, it has to be possible for the majority of people to be able to follow it. And given that 90% of American males look at porn weekly, that seems to say you couldn't ban the consumption of porn. I was just about to quote the Summa also. Um, <laughs> I, had that exact, I had the exact one I was going to quote. Yeah, I would, uh, this is another one of those things, just like with gay marriage, I, I recognize that it's, it's, it's never actually going to happen. I do recognize that. Um, there's no political will for it at all. But what, I still think it's worthwhile to talk about what ideally the government ought to be doing, even if it's not going to do it. And uh, as far as that goes, I would say ideally what the government ought to be doing is banning both consumption and distribution. And um, like I said, you know, it, it's, it's just like prostitution. I, I don't know why, well, I do know why, I mean that rhetorically, but I don't know why 
the laws against prostitution wouldn't, uh, wouldn't obviously apply to pornography. It's sex for money. Um, it's just the only difference is whether or not there's a camera there. Um, so I would, uh, I would have laws against both. What, what would you do? You would, you would, what's your take on it? So Thomas Inasuma famously says prostitution should be legal because of that. Um, so I would say production should be illegal, but consumption, it seems like, at least in the current state, could not be illegal, or else 97 males in America would be in jail. Yeah, well, that's, and that goes back to what, uh, in, in, practically speaking, what's actually going to happen. Yes. That's why I know this practically won't happen. But, uh, well, but I, I think, think you, you know, know it, 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 it wouldn't make a lot of sense, sense to me to ban one and not the other. Um, although I would, you know, I would certainly accept that. that I'll tell you what, that's a compromise. I'll, I'll agree with Thomas Aquinas, and I'll take that compromise. Let's just ban production of it, and I'll be, I'll be happy with that as a start, I suppose. I mean, I'll take anything. Yeah, yeah exactly. Thank you. Beggars can't be choosers, I guess. Hello, my question is a little bit more personal. You've spoken in your podcast about your family of origin and how when you get together with your extended family members, you can talk politics and religion and have a lively debate. It's a positive thing because your fundamental values, the things you believe are the same. You share the same fundamental values, the things that are important. Um, I'm a Catholic homeschooling mother of five, and obviously I want my children to stay true to their faith as they grow up and the values that we taught them. And I was wondering if there's anything in your family of origin that your parents did that you can point to that you think might have contributed to the family culture you have today with your siblings and their spouses. Yeah, I think uh, there's really obvious things still worth saying, like we prayed every day as a family. Um, I'm sure you do that, but that's we, we prayed every day. Uh, the example that was set of especially, you know, seeing my, not, not just the prayer, the prayers themselves, but the example of seeing my dad, we, we would all get on our knees and pray every night. And uh, seeing that, especially for my dad, was, I think, an indispensable example. Going to church, you know, those are the really basic things. But one thing that my, my parents did that was very useful was, uh, especially because we went, I went to public school, uh, we, we were not homeschooled. And so my parents encouraged us, anytime we encountered something that was not right, um, a falsehood, they, they encouraged us to speak up and say something, even if it was in the middle of class, even if it was to a teacher. Um, if it would get us in trouble, they, they made it very clear to us that if, if something's being said that's, that's wrong, if something's happening that's not right, um, if you're, especially if your faith is being denigrated or misrepresented, which happened quite a lot in my experience in public school, uh, and you speak up and you get in trouble at school, you will not be in trouble with us. And um, so they encouraged us to do that and uh, kind of equipped us to be warriors and fighters in the culture. And so I think that's, that's, a, that's, an, that's an important thing, to encourage your kids to go out and um, you know, not shy away from these kinds of confrontations. Thank you so much. Hi, Mr. Walsh, thank you for your time. I was, a few weeks ago on your show, you talked about my school, former school district where I wasted 12 years of my life in Mankato, Minnesota. And I was wondering if you might consider becoming a trans Minnesotan. And if so, I'd be more than willing to donate my basement to your cause. Well, I, I, really, I really do appreciate that. I do feel, I had been thinking recently that I, you know, I do have a certain Minnesotan trapped inside me as well. Which, which school district was that? I'm trying, I don't even remember what. Mankato Area Public Schools. And what, what were they doing? They were requiring people to state their address on 
at the meeting when they had it oh, on fire. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm, gonna, I'm filing that one away. I'll think about it. All right, thank you. <laughs> I, we have been talking about what, yeah, we've been talking about what our next uh, victim is going to be, and, and that's, that's on the list now. This will be our last question. Hello, Mr. Walsh. Thank you for taking my question. Um, I am an educator, and every day I see exactly what you're talking about with the young men, the particular issues that there's a larger number of issues for the young men than for the women. Yeah. And I constantly am trying to help these young men navigate this system. I'm trying to teach them a good example of male leadership. What are some practical suggestions that you can think of as, as a school system and as for me as a teacher to help make a more masculine, friendly setting for them to learn in? Are you a uh, public school? Yes. Yeah, what, what grades do you teach? Six through high school. Yeah. Um, I, I always hate it when people ask for practical steps because I'm not the practical step guy. I'm the, uh, I get here and I tell you that everything is screwed up and then I let someone else come along and say how to fix it. Um, and the other, the other, the other problem, it, it's a good question, obviously. It's like, if you're going to get up here and have all the problems and you should have solutions, and I get that. But the other problem is that uh, oftentimes with these kinds of issues, there, there is not really a one, two, three, four step solution that we can come up with. Uh, lots of people make a lot of money selling those kinds of solutions, but in my experience, it's not quite that simple. So I guess I would go back, and I hope this isn't a cop-out, but I guess I would go back to what I said to someone earlier, that I think the best thing you can do, and this really is the truth, is just is by being, being yourself. I mean, by being um, you know, a man of dignity, by being a masculine man, and kind of going about your business. I, men, boys pick up on that. They notice that, um, and they kind of glom onto it, and they'll follow it. I think... One of the problems is when you really start trying to connect, when you sit down with the boys and you say, okay, let's really connect as men. Sometimes the moment you do that is when it turns them off because they get a sense of inauthenticity. And that's, a, as I'm sure you've noticed, with kids, that's a killer. Like the moment they think that you're phony or inauthentic, then you're a joke to them and they don't want any part of it. Um, this is one of the problems that churches have when they bring in, you know, youth pastors who got the backwards ball cap and he's like 45 years old using slang from, from 20, 25 years ago. Um, and uh, it kind of repels kids. I think to just be authentic um, as a man and uh, having that sort of masculine aura, I think, I think kids will naturally follow that and admire it. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks. All right, so I guess that's it. Thanks a lot, guys. I appreciate it once again, and um, thank you. God bless.